I'm Shaha Razani, and in the news, the hashtag BandyADL has been trending on X, formerly known as Twitter, with Elon Musk threatening to sue the ADL. It all started last week when ADL director Jonathan Greenblatt published a post on X reporting he had a productive conversation with the company's CEO about hate speech on the platform, stating that the ADL will be vigilant and give her and Elon Musk credit if the service gets better and reserve the right to call them out until it does. Almost immediately, hordes of the platform's right-wing users descended on the ADL director's post, voicing their disapproval of the discussion with anti-Semitic rhetoric. Ban the ADL hashtag was quickly boosted, not only by right-wing users of the platform, but also by notable far-right personalities and white supremacists. Now, ex-owner Elon Musk is threatening to sue the Anti-Defamation League for defamation, claiming that the non-profit organization statements about rising hate speech on the social media platform have significantly impacted X's advertising revenue. Musk also claimed that since he took over the platform in October 2022, the ADL, quote-unquote, has been trying to kill this platform by falsely accusing it and me of being anti-Semitic. The ADL and other similar organizations, including the Center for Countering Digital Hate, have found that the volume of hate speech on the website has grown dramatically under Musk's stewardship. Musk called the reports utterly false, claiming that hate speech impressions continue to decline since his early days of owning the company when the platform saw a spike in hate speech designed to test Musk's tolerance. Aliza Lewin is president of the Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under Law and one of the most notable Jewish leaders today, leading the fight against anti-Semitism on college campuses, online, offline, and in the legal battlefield. Aliza, thank you so much for joining me today on JBS to discuss this crucial issue for our people. Thank you so much, Shachar, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, so first of all, allow me to ask you about the issue itself. What's your take on this feud that's taking place on X, on Twitter right now, between Elon Musk and the ADL and the campaign against the ADL itself? Sure. Well, first, let me just say a little bit about my background, right? The Brandeis Center is an organization that works to help combat anti-Semitism. We were established to advance the civil and human rights of the Jewish people and promote justice for all, because ensuring that Jews are also protected by our civil rights laws is what will help ensure that our society is protected and that all are protected by, um, by our civil rights laws. So, in the in the current situation, one of the things that I've seen is I listened online for just a few minutes the other night when this was all exploding and there was on Twitter space a conversation going on where the people who were speaking were not just accusing the ADL of, as Elon Musk had, um, being the cause for the drop in Twitter or X's value and for causing that, but they were alleging that the ADL controls the Vatican. There were folks who said if um, the ADL doesn't want somebody to become a saint, they send a letter to the Vatican and the Vatican abides. The Jews, the Jews send the a Jews, letter to the Vatican. Exactly. The Jews send a letter and they will block certain people from becoming saints because they control the Vatican. The ADL, they said, is a mafia, that they train the FBI. They said that the ADL can get you fired, that all they have to do is send a letter and your company will fire you. They said the ADL has contacts everywhere with everyone and throughout the government 
In other words, what was happening online as a result of this was the um, opening of the floodgates to these traditional anti-Semitic tropes, the conspiratory, the conspiracy theories that Jews control the world, that Jews are nefarious, that Jews are, are behind the scenes as the puppet masters, um, controlling everything to the detriment of society. That was what this has now unleashed online. And the, the kind of the kind of reactions to these statements, what did, how did you sense were were these comments welcome by other listeners? Was there any objection? There were definitely people who were feeding on each other, right? That's part of the problem, which you find in these spaces is that um, they they are echo chambers, right? They're places where folks who already believe this um, will, uh, will support one another, each one coming up with a more outrageous allegation cheer, as if they're cheering the other one on. So it's very hard for, uh, for those who think differently to, um, to speak up in these right. spaces. That's Especially in these eco chambers. You know, you, Aliza, and the center, as you said before, um, you are at the forefront of fighting anti-Semitism, providing training against um, these issues, training professionals how to handle anti-Semitic incidents. I want to ask you from your experience, um, do you feel that there has been an increase in hate speech on Twitter and online in general in the month following, you know, Twitter X acquisition by Elon Musk? Was he, is it, in your opinion, him unleashing or freeing accounts that have been trading in such tropes, you know, for um, issues of free speech? Has this really been happening? Have you seen this trend? So there's no doubt, first of all, that the anti-Semitic rhetoric in general on all of social media and on, on, online is spreading faster than ever before. It's one of the reasons why I think we do see anti-Semitism on the rise. We do feel it because our society now, you know, before the internet, if people wanted to spread this kind of hate, they'd have to publish it. They'd have to circulate their publication. The distribution was so much more limited. Now you can put that out there. Within seconds, it has spread around the world. And not only is it spread around the world, but because of the algorithms that these online platforms use, they keep feeding more and more and more of this hateful rhetoric to the people that have gone looking for it. So, um, so we are we are definitely spreading it faster, reaching more people, and um, and promoting it in a way that we never saw before. There are some right online platforms which, because of the um, community pressure and the recognition that this is a problem have started to try to take steps to rein it in. Elon Musk, when he turned around and put back on to his platform um, individuals or you know entities that have engaged in this kind of rhetoric, of course, that's you know opening up and providing them again this incredibly powerful platform to reach so many people that they had been denied when they were um, removed from it. So and 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 of course, you know, when when Elon Musk blames the IDL for the drop in ad revenue, 
um, into X and Twitter. This uh, this feud, like you said, opened the floodgates to all of these uh, other accounts to jump on the bandwagon and bash, you know, ban the ADL, which from even listening to you, we understand it's really the Jews. That's the code name for the Jews. It's the Jews. They're using the ADL as the stand-in for the Jews. The the attack is basically, it's the Jews. It's the Jews, Jews. who have become super powerful and are controlling everything to our detriment. That's Aliza, speaking to a maven like you is a great opportunity for our viewers to really learn where do we draw the line between free speech and hate speech, especially in those kind of online interactions on, on Twitter, X and, and beyond. So how can you explain a little bit um, to our viewers, what where do we draw the line between those um, elements of free speech? Sure. So in the United States, even hate speech is protected speech. It's a very difficult concept often for individuals here to um, to understand. But that's one of the one of the beautiful things, quite frankly, about our country is that speech really is protected, and you can, as a result of that, say some of the most awful. Um, racist, anti-Semitic, homophobic comments, and they'll be protected. So the speech, whether you're making it in person, whether you're making it online, is protected speech, unless it really is an immediate incitement to violence, which most of these, most of the time are not. Um, but what we really think, in order to understand how we got where we are now. So, so wait, before, like, just to understand what you just said. So in, in light of this, all of these horrific, abominable statements we see on X um, from these entities, they're allowed. So must they, are, they are allowed. Now, these private allowed. entities can restrict that speech, which is why you see the the or the platforms will set up what they call, you know, community uh, their community guidelines, their right. community rules. So they can set up rules and say, we are going to take down speech that is racist or anti-Semitic or homophobic. They can say they violate our community standards, our community guidelines, and they're completely within their right as private organizations to do that. But they're also within their right because of what's called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, the CDA. And it, Communications Decency Act. Act. CDA, Section 230. So Section 230 was actually enacted back in 1996 when the internet was really in its youth, in its infancy. And the idea was to help technology companies walk this fine line. On the one hand, people recognizing the potential of the internet wanted to make sure that it would remain this open space where people could share, freely share their thoughts and ideas. But on the other hand, they wanted to make sure that this online space would remain safe. And so they wanted to try in the law to inspire the technology companies to take some steps to protect the public from illicit or unlawful or hateful material, including the content that might um, incite violence. But what happened is in 1995, there was a New York State. So wait, so the, the, the CDA, just to understand, was it a recommendation? It was a law. It was a law passed by Congress. But, 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 here's, but the here's law required them necessary. to do what? So yeah. this is what made it necessary. So what happened is in 1995, this is before, the CDA was enacted in 1996. Right. As a result of a case that happened in New York, there was a New York State Court opinion that where the court there said that if an online platform 
passively hosts third-party content. In other words, the platform doesn't do anything. It's just like a billboard and people post notices up on the billboard. So the court said, if, the, if this platform does absolutely nothing, then they won't be civilly liable for damages if somebody else puts something defamatory up on that bulletin board. How can we hold this bulletin board? They didn't do anything. We just posted this notice. So the platform won't be liable. Um, the court though said, if however, that platform takes any steps whatsoever, even the most small, moderate, minimal steps to try and moderate the content that goes up on the bulletin board, then they're gonna hold the platform liable for every single piece of information that gets posted on that, um, on that bulletin board. The problem with that court ruling was it created this incentive for the companies to do absolutely nothing, exactly. right? Because if they do absolutely nothing, they'll, they they're won't not they liable. be liable. But if they do even a little bit, they're gonna be liable. So, so the, the legislature, right, realized, okay, this decision, if this is the way we're going, is going to be a problem. So what happened is the lawmakers enacted Section 230 to try to incentivize the technology companies to self-regulate this new industry. There are two key provisions in Section 230. One of them says that no provider or user of this interactive computer service, so in other words, none of these platforms, is to be treated as a publisher or a speaker of any of the information provided on, on in terms of the content. So in other words, you cannot say that the platform is the speaker saying this defamatory right. or right racist or anti-Semitic. They're not the speakers. So that was to give the companies immunity from the con from charges of what the content that would go up on their site. But the second subject was designed to try and protect the Good Samaritan companies. So what the second um, clause or subsection did was it said that no provider or user of these interactive computer services would be held liable on account of an action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. So in other words, the second clause said, you know what, if you're trying to protect the public, you will be protected even if you take down constitutionally protected material. So you have a right to control this space. Right. The problem is that the companies, even though they have this right and they are protected, they have not um, forcefully, right, in, engaged in um, These the efforts that are, nef that are necessary to really take down the, the hateful content that's up, that's right. proliferating. Because let's be honest, Aliza, this promotes engagement and even negative and horrible engagement is still engagement that feeds into ad revenues and, and, and beyond. Exactly. So they have conflicting interests. Right. And um, but they have the ability. So so what's happened is Congress has realized that Section 230 needs to be amended. But right. trying to figure out exactly how to draw that line and what the rules should be. The reason we haven't amended it yet is because we haven't reached agreement on what the most effective way to change it would be. But the platforms clearly have the ability within the law to do much more than they are doing.
And it would be helpful, for example, for the platforms to actually adopt the IRA definition, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, so that they could then take a look and say, ah, how do we know what anti-Semitic content is when it's posted online? Well, we'll go look and take a look at the IRA definition. And if this post falls into one of the examples or the categories, then we recognize it's anti-Semitic content. And we will, um, according to our own community guidelines, take it down the same way we would take down racist um, comments or, right? Or if they don't want to take it down, the other thing that they could do is they could leave it up, but minimize Limit. its distribution. In other right. words, don't push it out there. Have have an understanding that, okay, somebody has a right to say what they want to say, but they don't automatically have a right to have their hateful content pushed out, you know, around the world. So, so leave it up. We'll let you say what you want to say. It's there, but we're not going to promote it. Right. That's another. Right. That's, that's now the the IRA definition. Um, the IRA definition has been widely adopted by various governments, municipalities, institutions across the world. That's correct. Correct. It's over a thousand, and it's a very unique definition because um, in in terms of its process and how it was developed. So, and that's this is why it's become the gold standard definition. So the IRA definition is not like so many of the other definitions put out by scholars over the generations, right? There are probably hundreds of definitions that scholars have put out um, over the years. But the IRA definition was a definition that was developed by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, which is a an intergovernmental body. It had representatives of over 31 countries now um, that were involved over years in consulting together with experts, in coming up with what the definition of anti-Semitism is, because they realized that in order to effectively combat anti-Semitism, we have to be able to recognize it, we have to be able to define it, so we know what right. it is that we're countering. And then that body had to unanimously adopt this definition. So it was all 31 countries that agreed on this definition. And it has since then been adopted by other countries around the world, as you say, by municipalities, by um, organizations. Uh, there are, um, but it is it is recognized as a definition that was developed not just by experts but by governments as the official definition of anti-Semitism. And and you're saying that no online platform um, has yet adopted the IRA definition. Not officially. They have not officially said this is the definition that we are using. Has any comment been made from their end about possibly adopting it or maybe explaining the hesitancy? They, um, I don't know that they have explicitly engaged in that conversation. Um, I am sure that there are those who have urged them to do this. Um, instead, I think they've decided to take much more piecemeal approach. So for instance, Facebook or Meta have um, have you know slowly adopted their algorithm. So I remember having a conversation at one point where I realized they at Facebook realized that their algorithms, when they were thinking about discriminatory posts, were designed to identify the posts that were punching down, right? 
talking that the the group that they were targeting was less than. The problem with the anti-Semitic tropes, as we were just describing, for example, the ADL attacks on Jews, are tend to punch punch up and suggest that these are all powerful. Um, so they had to revise their algorithms to try and find them. Um, and then they uh, have at Meta talked about taking down the Holocaust denial right. Um, post, right? So step by step, but not turning around and saying, okay, we will treat everything that IRA and its included examples recognize as anti-Semitic, we will recognize as anti-Semitic, um, but there needs to be. And I think um, the discussion with some of the social media platforms has has started. There needs to be a recognition of when, particularly when the word Zionist is being used um, right. as a substitute for Jew. So right. it's, I not... mean, it's, it's amazing to see that this, this specific few that we're seeing on Twitter, on X, is the classical anti-Semitism of Jews control everything and everyone in the Vatican. But it's also separate from, you know, the other types of anti-Semitism that we see tied to anti-Zionism. Correct. And and that's exactly right. The, and, and they're not doing a great job taking down either. But the classical anti-Semitism, you would think people already should be able to recognize right. and there shouldn't right. be disagreement about it. I, I will it. tell you, one of the things that I wondered as I was listening in those few minutes to what was being said on Twitter is I thought, you know, if Elon Musk were to bring this lawsuit, could that lawsuit actually serve as a real educational opportunity for society and the general public to really learn about what anti-Semitism is and what these traditional anti-Semitic tropes sound like? Or would it be a risk that our society is so far gone that if they hear these anti-Semitic tropes, they'll buy into like it. That they'll buy into it, like I felt was happening in that you know, moment that I was listening. Right. To. right. It's incredible how sustainable that strain of anti-Semitism is throughout the generation. Uh, but but in your case, in my case, and I'm sure in many of our viewer case, indefatigable would be a, an appropriate word to our continuous battle. And you mentioned before. Um, you know, your ongoing activities to combat anti-Semitism. I can't tell you how invaluable your teaching is for everyone, for myself, for everyone who's listening to you to understand where is the line drawn and how we should move forward in a more, you know, uh, empowered, educated manner. So I want to ask you about, you know, it's the beginning of the school year and you just had, the center just had a student conference. Tell us a little bit about what you do, what you did with students in order to prep them for what they may encounter in the course of this upcoming school academic year on college campuses and beyond. Who were they and what kind of tools were you able to provide? Sure, well, the Brandeis Center, because we're all about the law, we actually focus our programming on law schools. Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under Law. I love that. Correct, it's, that's the full name is actually the Louis D. Brandeis Center for D. Human D. Rights Under Law. Exactly, and, um, and we are all about using the law to protect the Jewish community from harassment and discrimination and helping society recognize that Jews today are not only targeted on the basis of our religious practice, right? So much of the um, kind of the, the historic, I would say, anti-religious um, uh, liberty work, right? I, I grew up, my father's Nathan Lewin, I was working with him. I grew up in a home where he was regularly, you know, using his legal expertise to ensure that Jews in this country could practice their faith freely and with pride. So it was all about religious practice. But what I've realized now today is that 
many Jews today are being targeted not on the basis of their religious practice. They're being targeted on the basis of our identity as a people and our ancestral connection to the land of Israel. Right. And if Jews express that connection, if they believe that Jews have a right to self-determination in our ancestral homeland, in some borders in our ancestral homeland, um, then they are now today, especially when it comes to students on campus, they're being treated as pariahs. They're being shunned. They're being marginalized purely because they believe Israel has a right to exist. And this includes students who may be very critical of the current policies of the current government, or they may not be fans of Prime Minister Netanyahu, right? But they are being shunned. Nobody's asking them. The, what justifies their this treatment of them is the mere fact that they, um, as I say, that they believe Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish state. Right. And uh, and so what we, um, what we do at the Brandeis Center is we have programs to specifically train law school students for a host of reasons. One is in order to be effective in combating the anti-Semitism we see today, you really need to understand this area of law. You need to understand the anti-discrimination laws. You need to understand the First Amendment principles. You need to understand the principles of academic freedom. You need to understand some of the international law issues relating to Israel. And so what we do is we put together this program in order to try and teach these specific areas of law to the law school students. But those who really want to get involved, we have multiple ways for them to get involved. So there are some students who create chapters on their campuses and run programs, and they're the voice that counters the um, the anti-Semitic narrative on the campuses. We have those who want to just come and work for the Brandeis Center and do internships. And then we have what we call our jigsaw program, our justice uh, initiative guiding student activists worldwide. And it's a program where we train law school students to be able to serve as mentors to the undergraduates who are experiencing the anti-Semitism on campus. So they learn not only these areas of law, but they also learn interview skills and interview techniques. And we work to pair them up with undergraduates who are um, representing their campus communities and who are the eyes and ears on the ground and able to put these undergraduates who are experiencing the anti-Semitism in touch with us um, at the Brandeis Center, but even just to make sure that they have um, a supportive student who can help them understand their legal rights and be there as a support for them. How do, if any of our viewers, students, you know, parents, grandparents, wish to get in touch, to learn more of your activities, to seek advice, um, seek counsel, literally sometimes legal counsel on some of the issues at hand, how do they reach out to you? So the easiest way is to send an email to info at brandeiscenter.com. And that's info at B-R-A-N-D-E-I-S-C-E-N-T-E-R, brandeiscenter.com. That will reach us. Um, you can also go to our website, which is at www.brandeiscenter.com through the contact button there. And uh, that's the easiest way we do. We hear often from parents. We hear from students. We hear from folks who are associated with different organizations. Uh, reach out to us. We're here. We're here to help. Thank you so much again. Hopefully, I, I've no doubt that many will. And I can tell you that I, for one, have learned a lot from uh, listening to you today, as I'm sure so many of the fortunate people who get to do so are. Thanks again for uh, joining us and for sharing with us your incredible knowledge in this field. And we look forward to having you again on JBS. My pleasure. Thank you. 
So what do the main contenders in this issue have to say? The ADL issued the following statement regarding recent developments with ex-Twitter. It is profoundly disturbing that Elon Musk spent the weekend engaging with a highly toxic anti-Semitic campaign on his platform, a campaign started by an unrepentant bigot that then was heavily promoted by individuals such as white supremacist Nick Fuentes, Christian nationalist Andrew Turba, conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, and others. Finally, we saw the campaign manifest in the real world when masked men marched in Florida on Saturday, brazenly waving flags adorned with swastikas and chanting, ban the ADL. But to be clear, the real issue is neither ADL nor the threat of a frivolous lawsuit. This urgent matter is the safety of the Jewish people in the face of increasing, intensifying anti-Semitism. Musk is engaging with and elevating these anti-Semites at a time when ADL is tracking a surge of bomb threats and swatting attacks of synagogues and Jewish institutions, dramatic levels of anti-Semitic propaganda being littered throughout Jewish and non-Jewish residential communities and extremists marching openly through the streets in Nazi gear. All of this is happening in a context of the highest number of anti-Semitic incidents that ADL has tracked in more than 40 years and just two weeks away from the Jewish holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And so this behavior is not just alarming nor reckless. It is flat out dangerous and deeply irresponsible. We need responsible leaders to lead, to stop inflaming hatred and to step back from the brink before it's too late. Elon Musk could not be reached for a comment. Thank you all for watching. And to all we say, stay safe, stay happy, and stay healthy in the upcoming Jewish holidays and Jewish New Year. For JBS, I'm Shahar Azani. Until next time, and see you soon. Shalom and Be'itraut.